think these windows work in a similar fashion. No? They are registers of life uh, through material. This is what architects do, we register life through material practices. Welcome to Tete Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this week's episode features Rice Architecture Professor Jesus Fasalo speaking with Frida Escobedo. Frida was the visiting Cullinan professor for the Option Studios in the spring of 2019. Her firm's work engages a wide range of projects, including art installations, furniture design, and residential and public buildings. Among her many accolades, she was the recipient of Architectural Review's Emerging Architect Award in 2016, as well as becoming the youngest architect to work on the Serpentine Pavilion in London. We are excited to hear Frida's thoughts on education and the focus of her studio at Rice. Let's tune in. Jesus Vasalo here at Rice University. I'm very happy to have uh, with me Frida Escobedo, the world-renowned architect and uh, visiting professor at this point with us at the Architecture School. Good morning, Frida. How are you? I'm good, Jesus. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. So hopefully we can cover some some ground um, today in this interview. I wanted to ask in a biographic uh, manner. I know that you did your undergrad at the uh, Universidad Iberoamericana. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that experience. Who were your mentors at that point, either in the university or outside of it, and how? What, what would you highlight of that formative uh, experience? Well, I studied in Universidad Iberoamericana from 1998 to 2003. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure that I was going to be studying architecture at that point, to be honest. I was um, 18. Uh, but I just went into architecture school, and the first week that I stayed there, I really loved it, so I continued to do architecture. And the, the way that architecture is taught in Universidad Iberoamericana prepares you to be an architect after, after five years. You don't have to go through practice as you do here in the States. So it, it becomes a little bit technical and a little bit dry in some aspects. So I think one of the key figures for me was Alejandro Hernandez Galvez, who is still a very dear friend. And we collaborate sometimes, when, you know, like on research or texts or things like that. He was teaching this class, uh, Philosophy for Architecture. And I took it the last semester <laughs> of my career, and it completely opened a different world to me. Like, this is... like how architecture should be done. Like it could be done not just by building, but also like thinking about architecture and making critique of architecture and making research uh, of architecture. So to me, that's that was really important. And was that uh, the segue or how you became interested in pursuing graduate uh, studies? Because you came then to the US, did your masters at Harvard at the GSD. Was that sort of part of the impetus? I think it, it planted a seed on me, um, but I finished school and I started working independently. I had a partner um, back then, Alejandro Alarcón, and we started doing small renovations and like the way you start when, when you're really young. Uh, we worked together for I think two years and then I started working independently and doing collaborations with friends. So basically I practiced for seven years and I was always flirting with the idea of going to, to grad school. And I was checking constantly, you know, the, the master's degrees programs, but it was until I saw this new program that appeared at the GSD, Art Design in the Public Domain. To me, it was perfect because it was 
It was described as a mid-career um, program. I don't know what that yeah, means nobody, because nobody, no, nobody, that <laughs> <laughs> because that's like too young to be mid-career unless you you're a f- uh, soccer player probably. Um, <laughs> What was interesting to me was that it was more research oriented and it was like trying to borrow from other disciplines and it was not a program that was just for architects. It was for visual artists, um, you know, like anyone in, in the design realm could come in into the conversation. So to me it was like, well, it, maybe this is a way to expand my understanding of what architecture is. How, how would you characterize the, the differences between, I mean, you've already to some degree done it in your response, but how would you characterize the differences between architectural education in, in Mexico and the U.S.? What what sort of maybe was more um, it became more evident to you about those differences when you when you arrived at uh, the GSD? Well, I think the, the first thing is that um, we don't have majors and minors. You just jump in mm-hmm. into professional architecture, degree. professional degree. I mean, there are good things and bad things about both strategies of teaching. One that I think is very effective in in a place like Mexico is that you have a career after five years and you're ready to work. Like that's all you need. But on the other hand, you don't have the opportunity to explore the periphery of your profession. Like you could be doing an art major and then slowly defining who you want to be and like the the more U.S. based, uh, yeah, that allows for more yeah, exploration. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, your stay at the U.S. was precisely that sort of perhaps allowing yourself to explore what type of architect you wanted to to become. No? And I guess also that then upon returning to to Mexico and resuming your practice, that became very evident no? because you've been very consistent in pursuing a type of hybrid practice that is also not very common in the country, right? I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's not so common to find in Mexico people who do both practice and produce um, intellectual or sort of cultural content. No, I think perhaps uh, Fernanda Canales would be one example that I could think of, but in her case, it's very separate. Right? She mm-hmm. has, uh, in a way, her practice, and then she has her scholarly production. But in your case, it's much more fluid, no? Because I think m- perhaps through the... Um, influence of art formats in your works and installation formats in your work you somehow blend those two those two components into each of the projects would you would you say that characterization is more or less accurate yeah yeah i think if you're putting it like that um i think one of the things that the gsd taught me was that thinking through making was very important now every time we are doing a project no matter how small or if it's a commission for some more traditional architecture, we're always trying to ask this question, like what can it teach us, wha- how can it uh, really explain a context or, you know, like different dynamics. So even if it's, let's say, furniture or designing an object, we're asking those questions. So it becomes part of like the larger language that we're developing yeah. as architects. It's more a practice that cuts across different media, but it's always working mm-hmm. on, the m- on the same topics, really. No? Mm-hmm. This is, again, perhaps more my own personal impression, but I get the feeling that that approach to practice that was very unconventional, perhaps, when you uh, sort of went back to Mexico a few years ago, it doesn't feel now so... uh, It feels like now there are maybe a few other people that are taking on 
not similar, but maybe sort of more sim sympathetic approaches. So how would you characterize your work in the context of sort of young generation of Mexican architects and the contemporary scene of uh, architecture? Well, I think the practice has changed very much in the past few years. Um, we, like we had in the past when I was starting uh, school, uh, this idea of the super architect, no, the, the superstar. And I think that's a figure that is slowly fading away. We don't have uh, those type of dynamics anymore, not, not in our economy, not in our context at least. And I think it's slowly fading also in Europe and in North America. Uh, so we have to find different venues uh, to, to do our work and the, the most effective uh, way to do it is not to hyper specialize but to stay very fluid and to you know like just try to find little points where you can interact and I think that's one of the reasons why this becomes a little bit more common nowadays like people are trying to find ways to work not only by designing houses or designing office buildings or specializing in retail but to ask um, a, a question that, as you were saying, would cut across all of them and then maybe allows you to, to stay more more fluid. And in terms of, uh, I don't know how to say it, uh, thematic or sensibility, or uh, who, are, who are people in your generation or other generations that are currently in practice now in Mexico that you feel are sort of uh, uh, somehow part of the conversation that you're interested in? Well, I... I have very dear friends who are working along these, these lines and sometimes we collaborate, so I'm, I feel very grateful. I would say Rodolfo Diaz Cervantes, who is an artist based in Mexico, we collaborated with him a couple of times. Uh, Javier Nueno and Luciano Conchero, who are critics, uh, one in the visual arts and one in the literature area. We are developing research with them. Uh, but also with younger architects like Lanza uh, mm -hmm. Atelier, who was recently here in Houston, or um, Productora. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have like very interesting conversations, uh, and also all like people from a previous generation, like yeah. Mauricio Rocha, who mm -hmm. was my mentor for uh, the Fonca uh, mm -hmm. scholarship. I always go back to him when I need advice. So it becomes not just collaborations, but also like this this kind of complicity that we have yeah. between offices and, and studios. Yeah, that's interesting. I would say perhaps uh, another difference between um, within Mexico and the U.S. is that the, the social the structure of the profession of architecture is more intergenerational. Mm. No, I would say that in the U.S. it's very stratified by generation versus a place like Spain where I'm from or, or Mexico mm -hmm. is much more inter intergenerational, which I think is, is nice actually. It makes for a mm, richer conversation in a way, I think. Uh, the larger topic of uh, individuality and, and collectivity are also found in your um, in your research on uh, gridded facades, which I understand is part of a, of a work in, in progress. No? And you've shown here at the school some images of your research of these sort of um, mid-century office buildings in, in Mexico City where you photograph the way that uh, these buildings age and people appropriate sort of parts of the facade and, and and how they're somehow modified through uh, through time so I guess that adds a, also the work with the grids in my mind at least it adds another slightly different topic which is the certain conflicted relationship between freedom and uh, and order uh, in architecture or control how do you see the architectural facade sort of as a, as a way to convey that that uh, tension 
Well, to me, it became really interesting to realize that that kind of constraint would actually become a very fertile ground for self-expression. Because usually you would think that a very strict grid uh, doesn't allow for that type of thing to happen. Observing these facades in Mexico City, and maybe it's because we're Mexican and we can adapt <laughs> all of these things to self-expression, but to me, it was the transparency and the grid that made the differences more evident. And I was—I I started that research at the same time that I did the Eco Pavilion. Mm -hmm. So I think you can draw a parallel line to that. No, like the, the Eco Pavilion uh, had a very um, regular pattern to it, but then because people were moving the pieces and the regularity of the pattern was disrupted, it became more evident that something uh, had happened uh, in that space. No, if they were just like randomly placed, you wouldn't see how people were interacting with those pieces. And in the same way with these facades, it's because it has uh, this very particular type of grid with glass, but it's because of transparency and the reflection of the glass that people make adaptations on the inside that they think or believe that it's not going to be read in, in the public space, but it actually is if you pay enough attention. So it becomes almost like um, an accretion, like a geological accretion that happens in the glass, but behind the glass. Uh, so it's a, it's a changing facade, but it's changing inadvertently. The facade actually remains untouched but everything is evident there, the social life, the collaboration, the political preferences, the relation to, trans to transparency if someone is hanging a sign on the window or how they block it. So to me, that, that relationship with the publicness or the, the public face uh, of the building, the facade and the self-representation was very important. And is that a, a, a project that um, takes on another form? Or what is the current form of the project if you're still working on it? Yes, we've been working on that research for many, many years. Um, and the first iteration was to photograph them, uh, like to do this kind of uh, scan yeah. know, of the building. But more recently, we were able to acquire some of the windows of one particular building in Colonia Juarez, which is really close to my office. It was presented in this exhibition, Architecture Effects, in Bilbao, the uh, Cubingham Bilbao. It's an exhibition curated by Troy Conrad and Manuel Sirauki. And the idea was to think about architecture not just in terms of the social life and how we see it through photographs, but also how architecture itself is a register of life. So Manuel and I were discussing a lot how um, inscription, language, sculpture, and lived space have like this kind of relationship to it. You know, he was telling this story about like the vinyl records and it's music, but it's also if you think about it, it's an inscription, and if you think about it again, then it becomes sculpture. It's a microsculpture that allows sound to happen, and I think these windows work in a similar fashion. No, like they are registers of life uh, through material. And this is what architects do. We register life through material practices. Because the, the projects are, or rather because the objects are, we understand them as remains of a former building, no? Mm -hmm. They also reference somehow the idea of the, of the ruin, no? Which is yes. like a more extreme yeah. approach to, to how architecture registers time. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I know that uh, your current studio here at Rice deals with some issues of ruination, which I know is a concept that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. So maybe could you please talk about, about that? Sure. I, I think that the, the first time that I was curious about 
the ruin was at the GSD. I took this class with Eric Naginski that completely changed my life. And it was explaining all these processes, like how the ruin is not something that just is a remnant of a particular culture, but also it becomes active and present in our everyday life. And I think it's reflected in the way that I analyzed uh, this building in particular, like the, the Juarez building. But then thinking about it, that is one particular way of seeing this process of abandonment, decay, accretion, erosion, and so on. And then these processes have been, to me, really important in the way we sh shaped our cultural identity in Mexico, no? like especially after the revolutionary period, we looked back at the pre-colonial um, architecture and all these references, but also to the colonial period. And that's how we built our new identity, no? especially like in the times of Pedro Ramirez Vazquez, for example, no? the, the, this architect that created uh, most of the in institutions in the post-revolutionary Mexico. When we come to um, like a more recent period, like NAFTA, uh, I noticed that there's a difference between this idea of, of ruin and then these other processes of ruination that have to do more with these neoliberal practices that we've been doing for the past, I don't know, 20 something years um, that have to do with uh, these processes of erosion and degradation, but in a political, social and economical manner mm -hmm. that somehow become really productive in another way. So it's not about creating this kind of romantic ruin but understanding that these processes uh, generate this other form of deterioration that don't go away because they become highly profitable uh, for certain spheres. So that's what I'm interested in right now, like to understand how these um, spaces that become uh, obsolete, uh, that create decay and social erosion are linked to other networks and how we can, as architects, start questioning those spaces, not just in terms of its physicality, mm -hmm. but also its connections to, to these other systems. I think this is a crucial question, and this is something that uh, should be addressed as design, because once we tap into these networks, we're actually designing spaces. We can also perhaps gain some agency you know, in these processes mm -hmm. that are otherwise considered to be outside of our Yes. realm of expertise or mm -hmm. authority. Yes. Maybe for someone listening who is not at the School of Architecture here at Rice, talk a little bit about how more specifically the studio that you're teaching here becomes mm -hmm. an example of such approach. Right before we, we presented the studio, we were looking at different ways that these processes have happened in Mexico, no? like the deregulation of land, for example, the disappearance of uh, the collective rural land that is called the Hido in Mexico. That was one thing. And then, for example, transportation, how the railway has been slowly deconstructed in the past uh, 30 years. But then a couple of days before we presented the studio, the new airport for Mexico City was canceled. And to me, this was a perfect example of these processes of ruination, even though it was a construction because the, the airport in Mexico City is located in the part that is just uh, the remnant of Lake Texcoco. So it tells a story of erosion, of the relationship we have with water, of uh, how the east and the west of the city have very different economies. And it's basically just a series of bad decisions that led us to build well, first a city on top of a lake <laughs> and then an airport on the remnants of a lake. 
but it was the only option to some people at, at that point and then just cancelling an airport that is 30% built just added to this narrative of like w how are we making these decisions what are the consequences and where do they come from so the students have been doing an amazing job of finding very interesting relationships uh, with the airport as an excuse to analyze a, like a larger constellation of, of things and of systems that to me is the actual project it's not just a site and they've been finding uh, links to uh, public transportation, to food, to water, to other networks of economy. So it's it's become like a, a like a larger critical cartography of, of Mexico City. That's a fascinating uh, project. Maybe this is more of a personal question, but for me, every every time an architect takes on a critical position, uh, which is necessary, I think, because we have a specific way to frame uh, problems that are helpful, that is helpful, I think, to articulate a public conversation about these topics that are really important. So I think even if, if only through uh, exerting that critical role, I think we can be very valuable. But oftentimes, I, from my own perspective, I, I always wonder about how that type of work or that critical attitude inflects somehow the more positive or proactive uh, act of of making or designing uh, for an architect, right? Because I, th I think there is somehow the act of design is by necessity positive or propositive mm -hmm. versus the activity of exerting criticality is, is by essence negative, right? And you do both things. So how do you see this relationship between these ideas basically and how is it different for you when you are doing work that is maybe for the gallery where um, you're sort of building a narrative for a public part of your work is to be to be negative mm -hmm. uh, versus when you are building in the real world where by necessity we somehow need to be assertive or positive right mm -hmm. and how do you see the relationship between those two ways of working I think it's a super interesting question and this is one of the reasons why I teach and I enjoy spending time with students because it becomes a, a, a question to myself, no? Mm -hmm. Usually the way that architecture is taught at schools is by proposing a building. Mm -hmm. And rarely you are able to question why you're designing that building. I think to me it's important that schools are starting to think uh, about design in different terms, not just about the construction of something new that's commissioned by a particular client, but also how we can build our own opportunities. And maybe those design opportunities have more with saying no to things rather than saying yes to things. And that gives us a lot of agency and it's really encouraging, uh, I think, to new generations because we, we tend to do these things in architecture school. But if you think about it, like what percentage of architects who are trained as architects are going to design airports? I don't know, maybe 1%. So to me, this is uh, a very interesting question. Like, okay, let's talk about large infrastructures such as airports, railways, and things like that, because maybe if we understand the processes behind them, we can t take design uh, questions into a smaller scale, but that become more effective. It's not about the problem of how the airport is being constructed, but also like what happens on the edges of that periphery and how you can create this form of collaboration between the local people who are living there uh, to create this form of resistance so these large infrastructures don't affect them as much. And to me, that's like seeing other publics as part of the, of the equation mm -hmm. of this large infrastructure that you only see in a metropolitan scale sometimes 
And just thinking about the friction between these edges is something that is crucial to me right now. Great, excellent uh, answer. I think that maybe the criticality comes in in the reposing of the question. Thank you so much, uh, Frida. I think these mm -hmm. are this is, uh, has been a really illuminating uh, uh, conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to hopefully learn uh, a little bit more and gain some more insight on your work. And thank you for coming today and sharing with us. Thanks to you, Jesus. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and have this conversation. For more information on Frida and current guest studio critics, visit the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platform to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Head of Ten.